So hello and welcome to um, the McFarland's HR podcast. Uh, I'm Matthew Ramsey, the Senior Knowledge Lawyer in the Employment Team. And this month, I'm joined by Jagvinder Kaur, who's one of the associates in the team. And we're going to talk to you about uh, the draft code of practice on dismissal and re-engagement. What an exciting, snappy title that is. Um, it is actually quite exciting because firing and rehiring, as the uh, tabloid press like to call what lawyers call dismissal and re-engagement, has a big profile. Um, you'll all remember uh, the backlash to uh, the P&O debacle in the middle of um, last year. Uh, and Tesco has been embroiled in, in uh, injunction litigation at the end of last year, all on the same point of uh, how can you change terms and conditions? Can you legitimately say to the workforce, we're just going to sack the lot of you and offer you re-engagement on these new, on these new um, cheaper terms? Um, often employers need to, need to look at changing their terms and conditions. That's kind of standard. But the, term, the, the ways in which you can do it and the ways in which you can't do it are interesting. So, Jag, I guess the first question then is whether or not you think the code that's been produced in draft by the government um, it broadly meets your expectation. It does. I was quite surprised, though, to see that it's more employee and union friendly than I would have expected to see, which is obviously very good for employees. Um, and that's because it underlines the need for consultation. Um, the code itself references the importance of providing information and the fact that consulting with employees is not a single event, but an ongoing process. And also underlines that dismissal really should be used as a last resort because of the damaging consequences it will have for industrial relations potentially. Um, and I will be really interested to see the final version when it comes as well because of the different interest groups that will be likely to respond to it from trade unions, the ELA and the CBI as well. And when when do you think that that's likely to happen, that, um, that, that final version? When do you think we're likely to see that? Well, the consultation period is currently open and that closes on the 18th of April. Um, but the government have said that they're very committed to this. So we can expect a final version quite soon after that. So perhaps summer. And I suppose this um, this document, when it when it is in final form, will sit alongside the ACAS guidance that, that was um, released last year. Um, so you'll have non-statutory uh, guidance from ACAS and then this statutory code. Um, what what is a statutory code? Why why does that matter? That's a really important question. Um, so statutory codes such as this draft code, which is um, intended to have statutory force, means that the code itself doesn't impose legal obligations. So an employer or an employee that fails to observe it won't of them of itself render the employee or the employer liable to proceedings. Um, so it's not mandatory to follow, but it is important to remember that the code is admissible in evidence in proceedings in either a court or an employment tribunal. Um, and any provision which is relevant to the proceedings must be taken into account. So why is that important? Well, the code actually drafts all this and says that the employment tribunal or a court can award an uplift of 25% if an employer unreasonably fails to comply with the code or decrease the employee's award by 25% if it's the employee themselves who fail to comply. 
Um, but just on that point, I think it's worth unpicking that just slightly. Um, it's important to note that the code says that will only happen if there's unreasonable failures, um, so a potentially higher hurdle to um, meet. And it's only where employment tribunal claims um, where the code itself is engaged. So that is only claims um, in Schedule A2 of TOLCRA. And again, it's only when the employee actually succeeds in their claim, which they very well may not. Okay, so so that's a kind of familiar concept from the from the the strategy code on grievance and disciplinary procedures that clients will will already have been engaged with with for a number of years. Yeah, that possibility of an uplift is the the kind of the the, the sting in the tail if you unreasonably fail to follow something. Yeah, got it. Okay, um, and so. Um, what what can you know cl- clearly employers sometimes ha- have um contractual terms either with individual employees or with um larger cohorts of employees that just don't don't fit either they're historically um entered into or times have changed um what 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 can employers do about that so the key point really here is when an employer is trying to um put forward changes to an employee's terms and conditions that an employee is not necessarily going to agree with, um, but the employer thinks that they absolutely have to have those new terms. It's really important at this stage, and this is what the code stresses as well, paragraph 20, is that the employer should re-examine their strategy. So once it's clear that the employees aren't prepared to accept the conditions without further negotiations, it's really important to take a step back, re-examine the business strategy and the plans, in light of this potentially serious consequences for employees. Um, And the code also stresses that an employer should take account of any feedback it's received from any discussions they've had so far with employees in the unions. Um, So the employer should carefully consider its analysis of why the changes are needed. And again, the code actually does provide a kind of non-exhaustive list of factors that should be balanced um, in the in the minds of the employer at this stage, for example, the damage to the reputation of the employer if the changes are put through and the employees are very unhappy about it. And in line with that, the damage to the relationship with the employees themselves within the workforce, especially if this would lead to potentially strikes or other industrial action. We're seeing a lot of that at the moment in the press. Um, And if the relationship really does start to deteriorate, um, the risk of losing valued employees, the risk of legal claims from those employees, and tied to that, an employer really should think about any potentially discriminatory impacts of um, not only the change, but the way in which they're putting the changes through. Because if the changes they're trying to achieve and the methods for which they're trying to achieve them could have a disproportionate impact on a specific group of employees who, for example, share a particular protected characteristic, that could call into question a potential discrimination claim as well. That's an interesting point, isn't it? And I suppose that underlines, uh, as, and it's a common thread throughout the draft, I think, that consultation is is the key. Um the the ACAS guidance last year you used the words last resort, um, presumably dismissing large trunk large chunks of your workforce and offering to re-engage them on different terms is always going to be a nuclear option or the last resort. Um, 
Uh, and so presumably employers uh, are, should be well advised to try to agree that the changes rather than try to impose them on, a, on an unwilling workforce. Definitely. Um, and the first option, obviously, is to agree. Um, but that isn't always possible. Sometimes an employer is in a situation where they need to consider imposing new terms um, and may need to impose them unilaterally. Um, but going to your point about um, the threat of dismissal almost as a bargaining tool, that definitely shouldn't be used. And that is explicitly set out in the code. Um the code itself says an employer should be honest and transparent about the fact it's prepared to attempt to unilaterally impose changes if negotiations fail, but a threat of dismissal should never be used only as a negotiating tactic if the employer is not in fact contemplating dismissal um, just as a, a means of obje- achieving those objectives. That's an interesting point, isn't it, that the the draft talks constantly about the need for both sides in the negotiation to be open and transparent and honest and for the consultation to be meaningful. Yes. And it's interesting that, that that kind of language is fairly aspirational. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the tribunals come to examine whether somebody has approached a negotiation in an honest, transparent way, given your point about um, the possibility of increased um, tribunal awards where somebody unreasonably fails to follow a provision in the code. You know, it's going to be quite interesting to see what, how people judge um, a party's honesty or transparency and whether they've, what evidence you might lead to try to prove or disprove those things. That's exactly right. And what, again, is interesting is if we look at the back end of the draft code, um, it really does stress engagement between the parties above all else. Um, It talks about, for example, that consulting in the right way is of critical importance when negotiating changes to terms and conditions. It talks about the fact that neither party should approach consultation just as a tick box exercise, just to follow the right procedure, but it really should be meaningful and conducted in good faith. And the employer should listen carefully to any objections raised and consider proposals um, that may be alternative to that in light of those um, comments. Presumably those same uh, watchwords for consultation apply to all forms of employee consultation, not just in relation to dismissal and re-engagement, but for collective redundancy and uh, transfer, you know, 2P consultation, all of those. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is interesting that the draft notes do overlap with some other instruments. Um, for example, like you said, obligations to engage in collective consultation um, overlaps with Section 188 of TOLCRA, uh, which says that there's collective consultation obligations if you make redundant or propose to make redundant 20 or more employees in a 90-day period in a single establishment. Um, but also, if we look at you know the obligations arising when there's a transfer of employment under 2P as well, Um, though the collective redundancy point that I mentioned really is the most important here because, as we know, um, it can be triggered if you dismiss an employee and then re-engage them because the breadth of um, Section 195 of Tolkra is very wide. That's an interesting point, isn't it? So it's not just um, what 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 a layman might consider as redundancy that will trigger collective redundancy consultation. If you're actually 
proposing to dismiss 20 or more just so you can change their terms, that might also trigger that, that same consultation obligation. Yes, and that is something that employers should um, keep in their mind as well, because as we know, there are those specific obligations that need to be complied with, uh, for example, informing the Secretary of State when collective consultation is triggered. That's true. That's a good point, isn't it? Because um, that obligation is carries a criminal sanction and there have yeah. been prosecutions, although none successful so far anyway. So, dear clients, let's try not to be the first to get prosecuted for that. Um, and so let's just um, let's assume for the moment that an employer has gone through an exhaustive consultation, either with unions or elected representatives or workforce councils, or whatever, whatever it might be in place in that particular uh, setting. Um, and let's assume that they just haven't been able to reach agreement even after an open and transparent consultation process. What, what, what are the options then for an employer in that position? And, and what risks do they face? Well, the first is, I mean, it could be seen to be bizarre from an employer's perspective, but bite their tongue and agree to any amendments that the employees have um, suggested. Um, The benefit of this is that you're able to keep harmony within your workforce. Um, But if we're thinking about an employer who really does need to make those changes, they may, for example, think about using their contractual power to vary the contract, even though that there's no, no agreement between the employer and the employees. Though there would always be caution in, in relation to this um, option, because it really does need to be used reasonably to be able to use your contractual power to put through unilateral changes to a contract, especially because the courts won't allow substantial changes to be made to terms and conditions of employment unilaterally. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess in some sectors, so lots of our financial services clients will routinely have wording in their contracts that that allow them to make unilateral changes to comply with changes to the regulatory um, environment. And so those kinds of things you can see might might be easier to to impose than, as you say, a fundamental change to pay, for instance, or working hours or holiday entitlement or a benefit. That's exactly right. There is likely to be maybe more sympathy um, from the courts, from employees, if it's regulatory or legislative changes that require these amendments to be made. We saw that recently, for example, when um, Section 1 ERA terms were um, brought in to be mandatory to be included in all um, employment contracts. However, if the um, decision is being made to wildly change the working hour from midnight to 3am, as we were talking about earlier, Matthew, that is going to require some negotiations and some conversations with employees before you do just put those unilaterally through without even discussing them with your workforce. Great. So we've got um, then a draft that emphasises um, engagement with uh, employees um, that describes how consultations should be handled and um, that will have statutory force and the possibility of uh, varying awards up or down depending on who is at fault. Mm. Um, are there any other interesting points that, that you'd like to flag at this point 
I think another interesting point for employees just to keep in mind, and again, it's really in line with the theme of the draft code, which is um, trying to uh, increase kind of consultation between the workforce, increasing harmony, is that employers really should just keep in mind, even if they are in a situation where they really do need to press ahead with certain changes to terms and conditions of an employee's employment, that there are potential risks that they may not have turned their mind to. So, for example, if you put through um, a raft of changes that are going to be, and the employees have told you, are likely to be very unpopular, the risks that you run are, for example, constructive dismissal claims if the employee resigns in response to that, or they may carry on working for you and an employer may think that they're kind of smooth sailing, but the employee then brings a breach of contract claim. Or, for example, and again, we're seeing this at the moment in the press, a lot of industrial action, a lot of strikes, that could always potentially happen as well. And again, if an employee does um, either leave or get dismissed, there's the risk of unfair dismissal claim and and the risk of uh, discrimination as well if there's some protected characteristics there. That's interesting, isn't it? And so I guess the the watchword for clients is to... um, think carefully right at the outset about both the the legal risks that might be uh, triggered if, if um, no, I'll start that bit again. So the, the watchwords for clients are to think carefully at the outset about how you're going to present uh, the desired changes to the workforce, how consultation might, ha- might take place, how open you're going to be with um, employees, particularly if you need to share sensitive or confidential information with them to put in place uh, it's about sort of getting getting both hr and legal and press and pr and communications all lined up so that you've got a a seamless suite of documents ready to go that's exactly right um and it really does stress that consultation should be thought of um, kind of throughout the process. It should be meaningful, it should be conducted in good faith. And I found it really interesting how in paragraph 40, um, the code itself says the timing of consultation will vary um, How and a longer consultation period is likely to allow for a more in-depth discussion. No surprises there. Um, but then actually goes on to say it's unusual for it to be detrimental to consult for a lengthy time period even when you take into account that this can be an unsettling time for employees. So I think those are the key buzzwords to, for employers, uh, clients to think about is consultation, meaningful and, and good faith. <laughs> well, let's see if the government um, lives up to its own uh, requirements there. The consultation, as Jag said, um, runs until the 18th of April. Um if uh, any listeners would like to engage in that consultation, then uh, do get in touch and we can um, pass you on to the right people in government. Um, whether the government actually listens to a great deal of what comes through their consultation process is um, perhaps a, a moot point. Uh, I think they are certainly committed to pushing through uh, a final version of the code in relatively short order after that, uh, that consultation finishes. Um, we'll obviously update you through the HR briefing um, as and when that becomes final uh, and we'll flag any changes between the draft and final versions. Um, 
So uh, all it remains for me to do is to say thank you very much to Jagvinder for her interesting comments. I hope you found them interesting. Um, we shall see you again in February. Thanks for listening. Thank you.